verse 13. And we've been going through uh, the series in the book of Corinthians, uh, looking at how to uh, live life through the lens of the gospel, putting on the gospel lens to look at um, the life of this church in Corinth and look and apply to our own lives. Uh, we've seen in chapter 4, the apostle is uh, wrapping up his argument against divisions and um, uh, really arrogance and pride in the church. And now he shifts um, in his letter, he shifts focus to talk about a case of sexual immorality in the church and to demand for the, the removal of a, a certain person uh, in the church. So let's stand, shall we, and uh, read together 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. There's a lot to think about there. Let's uh, have a seat and uh, reflect on God's word. You'll have to excuse me for uh, my voice being a little raspy. We were at a wedding last night, and uh, Austin Robert Shaw, who was our um, former ministry apprentice, uh, we went to his wedding and there was loud music and dancing and it was great. And so I lost my voice. In the, um, in the fall of the year of 2005, something really important, uh, happened in my life. Uh, and something, uh, it was kind of this, this pivotal moment that really changed the rest of the course of my life for, for, from then on. And now when I look back on it, I, I think this was uh, one of the most formative things, uh, per perhaps, that's ever uh, happened to me. 
Uh, No, I'm not talking about meeting Shauna, although I did meet her in the fall of 2005. I'm not talking about living with the Phillips family, which I also did uh, in uh, the fall of 2005. And that was very, it was formative in my life. (laughs) Probably more so for Morgan and Zach. Um, No, I'm speaking about a very significant time in my life when in the fall of 2005, I won a year's worth of free burritos from Flaming Amy's Burrito Barn. And this is a really important event in my life, and uh, because I was right out of college, and uh, and this was like the, God had smiled upon me, and just was showering me with blessings in the form of Mexican food, which I loved. I like blessings in that form. So I, I, I had a year's worth of free burritos because I won a raffle at Flaming Amy's, and because I was a kind of broke right out of college um, um, kid. Uh, I discovered that how to maximize the amount of food I could get for my one kind of free meal. And I discovered that actually nachos, which are like twice as big as burritos at Flaming Amy's, cost just the same amount. So I would go and about twice a week, instead of getting the normal burrito, I would get nachos, which if you see them at Flaming Amy's, it's just like a plate of grease and chips and cheese. And it was delicious. So now for, for, for that year, I was basically living on a tortilla chip and cheese diet. Uh, so I went to our family doctor for a physical, and, you know, he did some kind of routine blood work because I hadn't been there in a while, and uh, he called me back in, and he had kind of a serious look on his face. And he was like, hey, just so you know, your cholesterol is, like, strangely high. It kind of spiked. Was there anything different uh, in your diet or in your lifestyle this last year? And I said, oh, yeah, well, I can explain it. I'm eating nachos twice a week at Flaming Amy's because I'm getting it all for free. And he was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, it's probably not that big a deal. I mean, you're a healthy young man, and uh, we'll, we'll just wait. You can come back next year, and we'll see if anything changes. Just, just let the year kind of ride out. Because he knew he probably he knew I couldn't like afford to eat any differently. Uh, and so basically, he said, you know, it's not a big deal. It's not serious. It's nothing to worry about. And, and he was pretty much right. I mean, there's, there's no long-term damage that I know of um, uh, that, that happened. So his response actually makes sense. But think about this. What if my condition was more serious? What if I had a life-threatening disease? What if I came to the doctor and he got my blood work back and he said, you know, I'm looking at the charts and I see something serious. This guy, I think he's really sick, but I'm not going to tell him. I got a lot of stuff to do today. This isn't um, really high on my list of priorities. I don't want to bother. I don't want to take the pains. It's going to be awkward. I don't want to bring it up. What would you say of a doctor uh, who did that? I mean, you would say, at the least, he's being selfish. Uh, maybe he's being irresponsible. You might say uh, that's illegal. <laughs> you know, he's, he's going against uh, the thing that he is pledged to do, which is to, as a doctor to do no harm. And he's intentionally uh, not willing to lift a finger uh, to help. Um, you see, because a doctor's job is to make the health of his patients a priority, right? And in the same way, the Apostle Paul in this letter, um, like a good doctor... He wants to make the spiritual health of his church, of the church that he loves, a priority. 
And when he sees a serious problem, like a good pastor, like a good doctor, he takes a serious problem seriously. He doesn't treat it lightly. And he calls the church to take the serious issue seriously as well. And he's calling the church in this letter to make their spiritual health a priority. So what we have to ask is, what does spiritual health uh, look like? I mean, what does it look like to be a spiritually healthy church? Mark Dever is an author and a pastor that a lot of us like at the church. This is what he says in his book, uh, What is a Healthy Church? Um, I'm not very creative in my research, you can tell. Uh, He says, a healthy church is not a church that's perfect and without sin. Rather, a healthy church is a church that continually strives to take God's side in the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Basically, he says, uh, there's a battle between sin and, and between God. And a healthy church isn't a church that's perfect. It's not a church without sin, but it's a church that takes the right side in the fight. It's a church that takes God's side against sin rather than sin's side against God. So for the Apostle Paul, for us this morning, we're looking at what does it look like to take God's side against sin in the church? And there's a word that the Bible uses often, a kind of a group of words, to describe what this habit of taking God's side looks like. Uh, and there's a couple words like uh, holiness, uh, purity. And uh, these words, holiness, uh, purity, uh, sanctity, devotion to God, uh, they, they don't mean perfection. But what they do mean when it's talking about um, the life of a believer, of the life of a church on this side of heaven, holiness is a habit. It's a direction rather than a destination. It's a quality that we can make progress in or we can regress in. And the normal goal for every Christian, according to Scripture, is that we would be continually desiring to grow and advance in this quality called holiness or sanctification or purity. Purity means an increasing devotion to God and to his purposes, a growing love for Christ in his word, a growing awareness that we uh, belong to him, a growing zealousness for his work. I mean, this this is the thing that Christ died to make a reality in the life of those who follow him. This is what it says in Titus 2. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and what to and to purify for himself a people to be his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's what it means. And in our passage this morning, out of love for the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul is calling the Corinthians to make purity a priority. And the way they're going to do it is by removing this certain person from the membership of the church. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm going to ask you to do this this difficult, this painful thing, I'm going to ask you to make purity in the life of the church a priority, to prioritize it, to strive towards it for the good of the person, for the good of the church, and also for the good of the world. So we could say just in our first point, looking at this, how can removing someone from the membership of this church 
How can making purity a priority in that way, how could this possibly be good for the person? Well, let's just look. If you'll turn to verse 1 and 2, he describes what's happening with this relationship in the church. A man has an immoral sexual relationship with his stepmother. That's why it says his father's wife. It's probably not his natural mother. It's probably his father's uh, wife. We don't know whether his uh, father's still alive or his father's deceased, but either way, there's this inappropriate uh, relationship. Uh, this kind of relationship is talked about in the Old Testament, and it's talked about and kind of r- routinely uh, forbidden. It says this destroys society, this destroys the family, this destroys the image of God in you. And also, it's not just taken seriously by the Bible, it's taken seriously by the Roman law. So even in this culture, and we've said that the culture in Corinth was this like pretty permissive, do-what-you-feel-like culture, this type of action, this type of relationship, if, if you had, had charges brought against you, you'd had all your property taken away, you'd be exiled to an island, you'd be completely removed from society because they thought it was that serious and that destructive. And so... In Paul's mind, in the mind of the church, he's reminding him, hey, this isn't a light thing. This is a serious issue. This is actually a crime, what this guy's doing. And so Paul's advice to the church, you see in verse 2, he says, let him be removed. And he says the same thing a couple different ways. In verse 13, he says, purge the person from among you. In verse 5, he also says this kind of difficult phrase, which we'll talk about. He says, deliver this man over to Satan. That's an interesting way to put it. And these three, these three phrases all mean basically the same thing. He's saying, excommunicate this person from the church. Take him out of the community. Excommunicate him. De-community him. And so Paul is advising that the church engage in what's called corrective church discipline. Maybe you've never heard about what church discipline is. This is one of the classic passages in the Bible that describe what this process of church discipline looks like. Uh, This word, when when we say the word church discipline, it kind of sounds like stern and judgmental and harsh. Um, But in the Bible, the picture of this concept of church discipline is actually, it's much fuller uh, than just this one passage uh, would show. Uh, Church discipline, this practice uh, in the Bible, is both formative and corrective. So what that means in the life of a believer, they're going to be kind of shaped and and formed and disciplined in two different ways. One is positive and one is negative. So the positive side is formative church discipline. Uh, So in a normal, uh, healthy church, you would come. And you'd listen to God's word preached, Uh, you'd read the scripture, and you would um, be receptive to having your mind changed. You'd be receptive to having your thoughts uh, shaped, to having your desires um, uh, changed, to grow, right? So, So that's this idea of you're being formed by the preaching of the word, by the teaching of the word, by the worship of the church as they gather together in small groups, in conversations, in prayer meetings. You're, you're growing, you're stretching, you're, you're throwing off um, the old things, the things that are part of your old life, and you're, you're taking up these, these new parts of your life uh, with Christ. Uh, and it's not just through information, but it's by these habits of corporate life uh, in the church. That's formative discipline. 
Now there's this other side, corrective discipline, uh, which is, um, this is what happens when basically in the course of living life together, someone makes you aware of a pattern of sin in your life and you're confronted with the need to repent and be reconciled to God and to the community. I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, we sit down for lunch and we read about the Ten Commandments. And I say, here are the Ten Commandments. Let's look at God's law. Let's look at um, who God is and how his character is revealed in the law. And look, here's one of them. Thou shalt not steal. Let's talk about what that means. Okay, that's formative church discipline. Uh, Corrective church discipline would be like, hey, it says thou shalt not steal. Let go of my wallet. Right? So there's this kind of positive side. But then you can see that when the positive isn't getting through, there's a need for the corrective education, the corrective uh, formation, the corrective church discipline. Corrective discipline usually only happens when someone's been unreceptive to normal formative discipline. When they're refusing to grow, when they're refusing to listen, when they're refusing to be shaped uh, by God's word, what results is... um, Corrective church discipline. Now, the most serious form of corrective church discipline is what Paul is talking about in this passage. It's something called excommunication, removing someone from the church community. And what I want you to see is that Paul's talking about a specific case, an especially serious case, uh, that's at the end of a very long process. We'll talk more about what this process looks like next week. Uh, It's in Matthew 18. Uh, Jesus talks about the process of dealing with sin in the Christian community. He says in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, you go just one on one. You go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, great, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, okay, bring two or more uh, others to bring one or two others along with you so that there are witnesses so that every charge that you bring against someone may be established by these witnesses. And then he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then if after you bring it to the whole community, if he refuses then even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Guess what Gentiles and tax collectors were? Not part of the community of the Jewish people, right? They were people who were on the outside of the covenant community. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if this person, after all that through this whole long process, refuses to listen, they refuse to be corrected, um, tell it to the whole church and then put them outside the fellowship. Um, So this process, notice it goes from private to public, from informal to formal, based not, by the way, on the severity of the specific sin, but on the refusal of the person to listen. I think this is really important because we have a tendency sometimes to single out uh, certain sins as especially more heinous uh, than others. But Paul gives a list of all types of sins. There, there are some sins that, whose natural consequences are super destructive. And, and the law makes allowance for that, that some crimes are, are, deserve a, a worse penalty. But what Jesus is saying is that the thing that keeps someone out of the community is their refusal to listen, their refusal to repent. So now we're going to go back to our friend in Corinth. 
Now, knowing that whole background, Paul is asking the church to take this final serious step, this measure of last resort, and it's for the person's own good. Because he cannot keep claiming the name of Christ while living in public rebellion to Christ. He cannot keep walking around saying that he's a member of God's community while living like he's not. He can't say, I worship God with my mouth while denying him in his heart. Now, we might say this seems super judgmental. This seems super harsh. This seems so unloving. How could doing something drastic like this actually be for someone's own good? Well, let's look at the hardest verse. All right. Let's just take it from the hardest case, the kind of the, the, the thing that seems the most harsh and severe. I would argue it's uh, verse five where Paul says, here's what I want you to do. Deliver this man over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, it, when you think about it, the church is the kingdom of God. The world in the mind of Christians is the kingdom of the devil. The world is under control and power of the devil. God's given it uh, to him, right, for a time. But God's rule is being made plain in the church. And so what he's saying when he says, hand him over to Satan, he's basically saying, put him out in the world. Put him out there in the place that doesn't recognize God's laws. It recognizes, well, the devil's laws. So um, he's saying, put him outside of the church And the reason is, verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved. Do you see? Paul's not saying, hey, he's hurt you, so hurt him back. He's saying, he's hurting himself. And we want him to be saved. So we need to do something drastic. Now, uh, maybe this, this will help if you, if you have this illustration. You know the story of the prodigal son, uh, Luke 15? Uh, Jesus tells the story of a son who lived in his father's house, and he's living at home with his father as his son, but in his heart, he doesn't want to really want to be his father's son. He doesn't like his dad. He doesn't like his rules. And uh, so basically he says, Dad, I, I'm going to just ask for my inheritance right now. So you know the stuff you were going to give me when you're dead? Well, let's just pretend you're dead and give me that stuff anyways, and I'll go do what I want with it. And so the father gives him his inheritance, and he goes, and where does he go? Off to a far country. He goes outside the community of the father's house, and he spends all his money. And outside of his father's house, that's where the Bible says that the son comes to his senses. That's where he repents, that's when he comes home. The son had to leave the place of community and love in order to feel the weight of his rebellion, in order to come to the end of himself. What we see in the Bible over and over again is that it's not loving someone to continually shield them from the effects of their sin. In some, in some cases, it can be cruel. And so in certain cases, what's necessary to do is allow them to feel the weight of the consequences of their own choices. And he understands that this is a difficult thing. And I know, if you've ever had to do this, this is a really painful and difficult 
thing. And in fact, if you like doing this, if you like letting someone feel the weight of your, their own consequences, that's probably a sign that you ought not to do it, <laughs> that you ought to wait a little more. Um, but he's saying, for this man's own good, allow him to be put outside the community so he can feel the weight of, his, um, of the consequences of his actions. So just, just for a checkup for us right now. Thinking about that, that whole, uh, you know, that, that, that whole um, lot of information uh, about church discipline. How do you do when someone comes up to you and points out an area of growth in your life? When someone points out an area of, of possible sin, even if they're not right, even if they don't say it in the right way, in the way that you would want to hear it, even if they've got sin in their life that you can see so glaringly, how do you receive it? What do you do? Uh, do you diminish them? Do you dismiss them? Do you argue with them? Do you get defensive? Uh, do you kind of assassinate their character to other people? <laughs> um, when you come to worship, when you come to a Sunday school class, um, when you come into a, a community group or a conversation with another Christian, do you come ready to learn? Do you come ready to be changed, ready to have your preconceived notions um, um, changed? Or do you come basically having it all figured out, wanting the person to agree with what you already think? Here's another thought. Um, Are you in close enough proximity to other Christians throughout the week so that they have an opportunity to challenge you, to encourage you? To comfort you, to call you to question your motivations for some of the things you do. Do people see you enough to talk to you about the state of your heart? When if not, you might be in danger. Uh, the rule Paul is saying for the church is, hey, church, if you see something, say something. And if someone says something to you, then we should say thank you, <laughs> as hard as it is. Um, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine wrote me a letter um, that was very gently uh, talking about an area of sin in my own life that I was kind of aware of, uh, but I had written off. And people who didn't know me well enough probably just thought, oh, that's kind of weird. He probably, you know, got, had a bad mood today or something. Uh, but this brother loved me enough to write me about it, to tell me that he was praying for me. Uh, I have that letter in my desk. And I come to it uh, pretty frequently because everything he said in it was right. But there weren't a lot of people in my life who loved me enough to say something about it. And, and I talked to him about it recently just to say, thank you. You have no idea what it meant. And he told me that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was to write that letter. And we're both like basically weeping. And I'm, I'm just saying, thank you so much. You have no idea what you have saved me, what the pain you have saved my family, um, the, the people I, I work with at church. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So the question is, if someone loved you enough to do that, how would you respond? Now, when a church makes purity um, a priority, it's not just for the, the benefit of individual people, right? It's actually for the good of the entire church. Uh, so you can see that Paul's concerned more, uh, not just about the attitude and, and the actions of this one person, 
he's talking over and over again about the attitude of the church. Look, look at what he says in, in verse 2. He says, guys, this sin is happening, and you're arrogant. You are fusio, that word um, we talked about before. Uh, arrogant means uh, fusio is like you've been blown up like a bellows. Uh, you're inflated. You're puffed up. This isn't right. Uh, he says in verse 6, you're boasting, church, you corporately uh, boasting about the health of your church body is not good because it's not true. Paul is mercifully holding a mirror up to the church to show them how far they have drifted from God's intention. And just look at this word picture that he uses. I think it's beautiful. Uh, verses 6 through 7, he says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Um, so he's talking about leaven, which is like, like yeast, right? And you know what um, unleavened bread looks like, right? It's like a pita bread. It's flat. But once you put flour with yeast in something, what happens to it? Puffs up. Paul's looking at this church and he's saying, you puffed up Christians. You puffed up church. I can tell just by looking at you, you're full of the yeast of malice and of evil. I can see it in you because you're puffed up. You're boasting. You're arrogant. The picture of God's people in the Old Testament over and over again, is that they would be a flatbread people. <laughs> that they'd be a people who's seeking to um, purify themselves from the things that puff them up, from the things that make them proud, from the things that make them arrogant. Uh, that they'd be bread that are purified from the yeast of the world. This is what Jesus means when he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And his disciples are like, I think he's saying that we need to get more bread. And he's like, no, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. The way they prance around and make everyone look at them. The way that they, they look down their noses at other people. The way they're hypocrites. Watch out for that. It's infectious. Just a little bit of it's going to spread all through you. Like a virus. Like, like the flu. Like yeast in bread. And then he says something incredible to this prideful, puffed up church. And I, I want you to pay attention to this. Instead of just saying, stop it which he could say. He says, Corinthians, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you really are? He says, I know who you are. You're holy. You're pure. And because you are holy, because God has made you holy, therefore you should pursue holiness. Look, look at verse 7 with me. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened, flatbread, pure, holy. Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's why. Paul is saying, because of what Christ has done, because he has cleansed you, go and strive towards purity and holiness in your life. He's saying, church, become what you are. Become what God made you to be. God has made you holy. Hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. Spend yourselves to grow in the holiness that Christ died to provide for you, that the Holy Spirit in you groans out to, to make happen in your life. He's saying, walk in step with the gospel. Believe and know that God has redeemed you from the world. So live like it. God has adopted you as his children. Live like the children that you were adopted to be. This is the gospel. Not that we make ourselves holy through our own sacrifices, but that through Christ's sacrifice, we are made holy. Paul is saying purity must be a priority, church, because sin in the church threatens the very fountain of life within you. It cuts at the root of what Christ died to give you. And so Paul is recommending serious, decisive, even violent action, not physically violent, but decisive, abrupt action. Uh, Maybe this illustration helps. Maybe it doesn't. Um, not, none of us probably, hopefully, have had to have a toe cut off before. <laughs> but if you get frostbite, um, you've got this sickness in one part of your body. And the dangerous thing is that the sickness in this one part of the body can spread to the rest of the body. And so what you have to do is you have to take it seriously. If you want to save the body, you have to lose the foot. Or lose the toe. And so Paul is saying, the church, the body of Christ, the health, for the health of the body, for the health of the community, I know it's going to be painful to, to flatten yourselves out. I know it's going to be painful to grieve and mourn and not be arrogant and puffed up. But I'm asking you to deflate yourselves for a minute to save yourselves, to save the community. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So you've you, you got to fight for purity. You've got to prioritize purity for the good of the church. Now, there's just uh, one last corrective, I think, that, that Paul makes, and I'll be really brief. He says, it's not just for the good of the individual. It's not just for the good of the church. You know, sometimes we can get so focused in on uh, purity uh, within the church or within Christianity that we become kind of like heresy hunters. You know, there's this one danger over here that you would be totally unconcerned about sin, right? But then there's this other ditch that you can fall into on the other side where, you know, everyone's a heretic, everyone's a danger, everyone's um, losing their mind except for you. And so what Paul's saying is actually, I'm... I'm talking about a specific kind of separation here. It's a separation from this person, but it's not a separation from the world because this is not just for the good of the person. It's not just for the good of the church. It's actually for the good and the health of the entire watching world. Paul says, uh, What's your responsibility to the world outside? You're responsible for judging and evaluating the people inside the church. But outside, in that world out there, uh, that world is under the judgment of God. And so he's saying you need to be compassionate for the world out there. Remember, um, he says, 
I'm writing you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Hey, and I don't mean the sexually immoral people of the world or even the greedy people or the swindlers or the idolaters because then you'd need to go out of the world. And Paul is saying, that's impossible. (laughs) You can't leave the world yet. You're in the world. You're not supposed to go out of the world yet. This is what Jesus says in John 17. He prays, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world, but sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he says this, as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. This is the tension for us, to be in the world, but not of the world, to be dual citizens. Consecration in the community, contact with those outside the community. If you give me just a, a final illustration, think about the stars at night. I, mean, I went camping with Gus uh, re- recently in our backyard, and we were kind of looking up in the sky, and we were going, "Yeah, the stars aren't quite what we hoped tonight, right?" Because it was eight o'clock, <laughs> which is bedtime. So we're looking out in the stars. We're looking, and we know the stars are there. But you can't really see them. You can't really delight in them. You can't glory in the beauty of the stars. Why? Well, they're not against the darkness yet. Jesus has called his people the light of the world. We're supposed to shine in the darkness. The light of the church is supposed to stand right up against the darkness of the world. So that the world can see the beauty and the truth and the glory of the image of God reflected in the people of God. And so we make every effort to remove the sin that distorts and defaces the image of God. So people can see the glory and the beauty of Christ in us as we try to reflect his character. We're supposed to be stars shining in the darkness. This is what it says in Philippians 2. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Right in the middle of a crooked, twisted world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us and not leaving us. in our sin, in our sickness, in our confusion, for giving us your word, for shaping us. And Lord, pray that you would make us a people like Jesus, uh, people um, who had contact with Gentiles and and tax collectors, uh, people who need to know your grace. And Father, help us um, to know uh, how to fight for purity, how to fight for holiness, how to fight against sin while still loving uh, sinners. We thank you that you uh, love sinners like us. Lord, help us to follow after you. Give us the power to do it by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.